When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, sleek handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com now and get $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. That's harrys.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, I'm a Lumberjack and I'm OK edition. It's Wednesday, December 17th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Top 5, the new film directed by the comedian Chris Rock, in which he plays a stand-up comic who's having a crisis about whether he's still funny. We'll talk about whether or not that's the case for Chris Rock. And then Slate contributor Daniel Gross will join the GabFest to talk about his new Slate series on the seven wonders of the modern world. And finally, are bushy beards, plaid shirts, and work boots the new mark of male sexuality? We will introduce you to the theory and practice of the lumber sexual. Tragically, we will not be joined by Steve, who is the one who <laughs> foisted this topic upon us because of his own, I think, deep, deep investment in uh, <laughs> country living. Well, that gives us free reign to talk about him. So, Yeah, we can decide whether he is one or not and then report back to him <laughs> next week. Joining me today is Slate's editor, who you hear talking to us from D.C. today, Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hello. And Slate senior editor David Hagland filling in for lumbersexual Steve Metcalf, who's off chopping down a tree somewhere in upstate New York. Hey, uh, David. Hey, Dan. I'll do my best. All right. Well, let's get started. In the just-released movie Top 5, directed by and starring Chris Rock, he plays a stand-up comic named Andre Allen, and I think maybe a possible reference to Woody Allen, who's all over this movie, but we'll talk about that, too. He plays a star who's on a bit of a downslide. He's famous for playing a man in a bear suit named Hammy. This is his big character. I took it to mean, yeah, I mean, I think took it to mean that he was playing an actual bear in the movie, but a bear who is on a police force and fights mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a police bear. I somehow thought for some reason that he was sort of like a sports mascot bear or something. Just a furry Turned who... cop. <laughs> 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 That's a movie I would want to see. So, and his character, Andre Allen, what else do we want to know about him before we get started? He is about to get married to a reality TV star played by Gabrielle Union. Right. And he has a new movie coming out called Uprise, spelled with a Z, in which he plays Duddy Bookman, who was an actual leader of the Haitian slave rebellion. Right. So Uprise with a Z is Andre Allen's attempt to, to break out of the comedy prison and to try to become a dramatic actor. It's also the first movie he's ever made sober. So as we learn early in the movie, he's in recovery and, you know, all of his comedy career essentially was performed drunk. High. So Top 5 traces a day, one day and one night, that this Chris Rock character spends in the company of a New York Times reporter, Chelsea Brown, who's played by Rosario Dawson. They meet at the beginning of the movie, have an uncomfortable exchange, and then she sort of follows him around the rest of the day for this profile. And romance and hijinks of all sort ensue. So I want to hear what you guys thought of this movie, just sort of a quick 
thumbnail reaction, and then let's let's get into it. Well, I reviewed this movie for Slate, and I think in the first sentence I called it extremely enjoyable, which is exactly how I felt. I I loved it, laughed a lot, and it was one of the most enjoyable times I had at the movies this year, I think. Wow, that's saying something. Julia? I also really enjoyed it. It was so fun and so fast and so swift. It's maybe a bit of a trifle, and maybe if you start thinking too hard about the Rosaria Dawson character, it doesn't totally stand up, but it was just incredibly fun to be in the company of Chris Rock in this role and the many, many other comic performers that he pulls in to this film. You know, And these guys crop up everywhere. There's a scene where he hangs out with... A bunch of famous comedians playing themselves, including Adam Sandler and Jerry Seinfeld. There's a scene where he takes the reporter back to the projects where he grew up, and we meet a whole bunch of his old friends and family members played by a host of hilarious comedians, including, among others, Tracy Morgan. And that scene is just hilarious. It's sort of a tour de force of comedy. Well, let's listen to a clip of that maybe before we we, uh, get back and hear what Dana thinks. Hide the liquor, Look who's talking. Hide the crap. <laughs> Son, when Nas focus, he better than Jay, man. I'm sorry. Come on, That's Carl. real right there. Because Tupac or, was or, headed Tupac, for the Oscar. Tupac would be one of our political leaders. Mm-hmm. Tupac <laughs> might be a political leader if he's alive. But then, then again, Tupac might be in a Tyler Perry movie right now. So you don't know. <laughs> You never know. You don't know? You never know. He might be... That might be true. Tupac might be the bad gawk-skinned boyfriend in the Tyler Perry movie. I gotta agree with that right there. I would hope he's a senator. I gotta agree with that right there. But he might be kicking Jill Scott down a flight of stairs. (laughs) Put your top five. Who's your top five? Slick Rick, Kane, Rock Kim, Karis One, and Biggie is my fifth man, and... Jay-Z is my sixth man. My top five is Jay, Nas, Scarface. Oh, okay. okay. I have to admit. Rakim. 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 And then I might let Biggie get in there. My sixth man is LL Cool J. Oh! Before the show! Before the show! I just, I mean, that scene is maybe even a little bit more raucous than some of the other scenes in the movie, but you can just hear the back and forth. He and his old buddies are all debating their top five hip-hop artists of all time, and they're sort of a set of signifiers about what they value, about black culture and their own experience, and just a bunch of really funny jokes. Dana, you have very politely in the host chair invited me and David to share our opinions, but you are Slate's film critic. What did you think of this film? I mean, I laughed a lot. I'm going to be disproven by the fact that we just played a clip from, I think, the funniest scene by Leaps and Bounds in the movie. But in general, I don't think I was as much of a fan of Top 5 as you guys were. I I thought a lot of it made me laugh. But as a sort of dramatic story, it never held together at all. As a romance, I don't think it really held together. And we can get into all this stuff. But I mean, some of the scenes of, I don't know, sort of weirdly homophobic sex jokes and, you know, just lots of denigration of women and implicitly gay men. I mean, that kind of stuff you sort of have to let slide by you also when you listen to hip hop music. But I had a hard, harder time letting it slip by me when it was sort of right in front of my eyeballs. You mentioned a couple of those scenes in your review, too, David. Um, yeah, there, there's one in particular that involves uh, an ex-boyfriend, let's say. People can, can go see the movie. But, it's a, but it's, a, it's a fairly long scene. And while watching it, I was uncomfortable. It, it, it feels mean and completely unnecessary. 
Uh, and it's odd that, to my mind, that Rock made this gay man sort of one of the major villains in the movie so far as the movie has villains. And I mentioned... In well, the... it also just humiliates him sexually right. in a way that, you know, I, I, I guess is funny in a towel-snapping locker room sort of way, but that made me really squirm. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually thought that the scene included a pretty impressive bit of physical comedy by Anders Holm, who plays the boyfriend. But but yeah, that's the, that is the kind of humor that it is. And it has been called out for its homophobia, rightly so, I think. In the review, I mentioned that Rock's sexual politics have really never been as progressive or as sophisticated as his take on race. And that's borne out by this movie. But I didn't, I didn't enjoy this movie really for its story, although I do think that Rosario Dawson and Gabrielle Union are both very good. Uh, but mostly it was just the kind of scene-to-scene energy that it had. And even in listening to that clip, you can you can get a sense of, of what it's like, but it's not the same when you don't see how kind of zippily it's edited and just the moving around from character to character and all these really funny people and then being in a movie theater full of people laughing, which is just such an enjoyable experience. Yeah, it's a huge crowd pleaser. I mean, I think people should go and laugh and, and have a good time. It, I just don't think that Chris Rock has completely transitioned here from tying together a lot of sketch comedy pieces, some of which are funnier than others, some of which are very funny, and turning it into a dramatic arc and a story, particularly a a story that's about recovery, about, you know, possibly backing out of your impending marriage. I mean, there's some some dramatic meat here that I think is really just not gotten into. We learn almost nothing about Rosario Dawson's character, who's a single mother, right, who lives with her. Oh, I disagree. I mean, look at you, Dana. You're just you're just (laughs) shitting all over Chris Rock's uprise, man. He's trying to make a real film here. Is trying to make his Annie Hall, and you just want him to get back in the hammy suit. I mean, put it this way: I love that Chris Rock is trying to make his Annie Hall. I really do. I, but I, but I don't. But I'm not sure that this movie kind of. I think I would launches describe, his career in the way that Woody Allen's you know was launched. By I wouldn't comedy. describe it as his Annie Hall. I would describe it as his Stardust Memories, which is Woody Allen's movie about trying to be serious and everyone wanting him to do his earlier funny stuff. Uh, that seems to be where Chris Rock is right now, and I agree. I mean, Annie Hall is Woody Allen's best movie. This, this is not Annie Hall, but I think it's very good and very funny, and I do think there are things that the movie shows us about his experience of fame. But for all of the auto, autobiographical trappings, this character actually is very different from who he is in real life, uh, as far as I can tell. Right, including the fact that Chris Rock is not Eddie Murphy. He's not a guy who made a career of putting on bear suits and making goofy movies. Yeah, the closest analogy that he's made is with the zebra that he voices in the Madagascar movies. But obviously, people don't associate him with that role in the same way that Andre Allen is associated with Hammy in this movie. Oh, I don't know. I have so much more... I don't. This movie is just so genial. It makes you like it. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe when you start thinking about that potentially homophobic scene or the Rosario Dawson character, which I think my husband and I had the conversation afterwards was the Rosario Dawson character a manic pixie dream girl in the movie? Like, is she just this uh, alluring, interesting lady who's out to save Andre Allen from his mistakes? And I think I'm a yes on that vote. I think there are elements of that. You know, at one point she she celebrates her love of hot sauce in a way that feels like this is this is so clearly some particular male fantasy that, oh, it's a woman, but she likes hot sauce. I don't know. It, <laughs> it, sets, it sets up the mean, humiliating joke later on. It does, on. totally. Well, but, and, and there are aspects of her character which I don't think we should spoil that make no sense. <laughs> right. And as you observed in your review, there's the vision of journalism and how New York Times film criticism works is yeah. kind of mind-bogglingly ill-researched. <laughs> yeah, or just fantastical. I mean, I think, so there is also a Cinderella motif in this movie. I think it's more self-conscious about this stuff than maybe we're giving it credit for. There's this Cinderella motif that is associated with her character and which is clearly, you know, it's woven throughout the movie. So I think she is 
an embodiment of, of a fantasy of some kind. But she's also, like you said, a single mother. She works for a living. You meet her mother. I think she's more fully realized than, than, than you're suggesting, Dana. Yeah, I agree. Her performance is great. And in fact, that's part of what makes me love this movie so much and makes me sympathetic to it is that it has such generosity of spirit. I mean, the performances in it are elicited with such sensitivity and tenderness. I'm thinking in particular of Romany Malco, who has a tiny role as the Gabrielle Union character's handler, basically, or producer of the reality show empire that she's part of. And he literally like stares at her character twice and says three things. And from it, you can imagine out the entire architecture, mood and world of this reality show life that she's living. It's an extraordinary little moment. And that to me, that generosity of spirit affected the way that I viewed things like the weaknesses of the Dawson, Dawson character or even that possibly homophobic joke. To me, the movie's about authenticity and about being generous to yourself and your own true desires and the contempt for that character didn't have to do with his sexuality as much as his dishonesty in various respects of his life. And, you know, I, I, I thought that, I don't know, the movie seemed so generous of spirit, it made me generous of spirit. And so I felt generously toward that set piece. I have a few responses to that. My responses are threefold. I agree that Romany Malco is amazing. I've never understood why Romany Malco is not a huge star. I loved him on Weeds. I've loved him in everything he's done, and he always is playing, maybe not this small of a role, but he's always some helper guy in the wings. Like, Romany Malco needs to star in his own movie, as does Sherry Shepard, who plays Chris Rock's ex-wife, who's in that, uh, that scene. ex-girlfriend, that maybe? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if they were married, but she's yeah. his, ex, his ex-old lady, There's... and uh, she is, just steals that scene. She's so wonderful. I wanted the whole movie to just go off and follow her the rest of the time. But, Julia, I actually... As far as the, uh, the, the homophobic joke comeuppance, we're not going to get into the details of what it is, but I would say that even if it is the case that that character is humiliated because of his behavior and not because of his gayness, the mode of his humiliation does seem to be something that brings in, you know, a sort of literal homophobia, like a fear of what gay men do, you know, that just seemed to me something sort of ugly on screen. So you talk about the generosity of spirit. I see that with the actors, but I don't always see it with the storytelling. I mean, another example would be there's a whole funny sketch in Houston where Cedric the Entertainer plays the uh, the guy who picks up Chris Rock at the airport. It's a flashback, and he's his driver, basically, for this gig in Houston. And uh, the two of them hire two hookers and have this crazy night together, and that whole scene is very funny and body and raucous, and Cedric the Entertainer completely steals it. And then it ends on this very nasty note. I mean, I guess I don't want to spoil getting into what yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I did mention that one in my review. And I, t- I tend to agree with you on both of those counts, even though I feel much more generous, as Julia does, to the movie as a whole. I want to pick up on this question of Romani Malco, because I think it actually gets to a larger point about the movie that's worth making, which is when you ask, why isn't he a bigger star? Well, the fact that he's black is part of the answer. And Hollywood has not made enough movies for black leading men and women. And one of the exciting things about this movie is that Chris Rock went out and just made that movie himself. And two of the producers are Kanye West and Jay-Z, along with Scott Rudin and and Eli Bush. But he made it independently, took it to Toronto, got a huge response. They got it out, you know, before Christmas. And it's a it's a personal movie. It's an ambitious movie. And I think it's a very crowd-pleasing movie. And just the fact that he made that all happen is in itself really exciting and also ties into, I think, another context for this film, which is his incredible press tour and all these great interviews he's been giving that are so freewheeling and loose. You and mean frank. not his character in the movie. You mean Chris Rock in I real life. I mean Chris Rock himself. It's funny because then the movie itself, a lot of, it's basically a press tour. I mean, it's, it, 
it's the opening day for his movie, so you see him giving radio interviews and so on. But no, and it I makes mean, press tours look so miserable. But Chris Rock <laughs> is clearly enjoying the hell out of his. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. There was the Frank Rich interview. There was the piece he wrote for the Hollywood Reporter, which it's had, you know read like he dictated it, but you know for the better. Uh, there was a Grantland interview, et cetera, et cetera. And he has brilliant things to say. I think it was our colleague Dan Coyce who said to me that his press tour is basically the best stand-up special of 2014. And this feels like the kind of second apotheosis of Chris Rock following, you know, maybe Bring the Pain or, or Bigger and Blacker, one of his early stand-up specials that really kind of cemented him as a great comedian. Now I, I feel like he is back on the cultural landscape in a way that uh, is exciting and refreshing. And I look forward to, you know, whatever movie he makes next. Well, so do I. For all my reservations about this one, I mean, Chris Rock is ridiculously smart and funny and talented. And essentially, every minute he's on screen, there's going to be something funny going on. To me, still, some of the dramatic parts of this movie don't quite happen. But I'm giving it like a milder endorsement (laughs) than you guys. That is 100% fair. You've, you've, you've talked me over to everything except for still wholeheartedly recommending that people go see this film. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, all of you go and see it and, and come back and tell us. Am I wrong? Are Julia and David right? Am I just not letting myself be carried away by the joy of Top 5? It's in theaters all across the country. So go see it and tell us what you thought about it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. So before we move on to our next topic, we have a word from our sponsor. Right, Julia? We do. Our sponsor this week is Harry's. Harry's is the shaving by mail service that spares you the pain and expense of rustling around the Dwayne Reed trying to get someone to move those little plastic cabinets around so you can get your overpriced razor blades. Instead, they will send you in the mail a beautiful razor with several very sharp and excellently made blade replacements along with unguents and emollients to help you shave. And they will do this at an affordable price. I believe David Hagland has tried Harry's. David, can you vouch for the Harry's shaving experience? Yeah, it's great. The blades themselves are, are nice and sharp, but also the handle feels kind of sturdy and more substantial than the handles I'm used to from, from other razors. So uh, I've, I've used them. I keep myself a little more trimmed, I think, than the lumbersexuals we'll talk about later in the show. <laughs> and, and, and I like them a lot. It's true, David, that you you are not like a full lumber sexual, but sometimes you have like a, you know, you've, you've got some beard happening. Like, what do you do? Do you, like, I, I literally don't know. Do you like <laughs> shave the top of the beard? How do you make it work? The top and the bottom, because, you know, every man's beard grows in different ways, but I, there would be a lot of hair on my neck if I just let it go. And that would not, and to my mind, that would not look good. And also there'd be a bunch of my cheeks that I don't want. So, yeah, no, I, I keep the beard pretty much at all times, but there's still a bunch of shaving you got to do. Yeah, you go to sculpt, right? Exactly. You, you shape it. <laughs> We're going to have to return to this in our lumber sexual segment, I think. We've got, I've got more questions about well, that. Well, you know, Mike Pesca shaved live on air in his podcast to, uh, to advertise Harry's, so I think he, we have to do him one better. Maybe take off an entire beard. Turn Haglund <laughs> oh, beardless. No. I'm, not, I'm not ready. And maybe his hair as well. All right. Well, if we were to pull any of those stunts, Harry's would be the natural implement. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our coupon code CULTURE with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code CULTURE at checkout for $5 off, and start shaving better today. All right, Dana, what's next? Thanks, Julia. For our next segment, we'll be joined by Dan Gross, who's a longtime contributor to Slate. Uh, He writes on energy, among many other topics. And Dan is in the midst of a seven-part series that we've been talking about on the show for a while, about the seven wonders of the modern world. We've been shouting out to you, listeners, for your ideas and contributions to this series, in which 
Dan is trying to figure out what are the hanging gardens of Babylon of the 21st century. He has so far published the first five of his seven wonders and is still in the midst of, correct, Dan? You're still, you're still coming more. up with your, but do you know more. your last two? Do you have them in your I pocket I think I yet? do, yes. And they were largely crowdsourced from readers of Slate some, you wrote in? Some of them were uh, derived from suggestions from readers, yes. And so over the next... Two weeks? How long will it take for yeah, all these to Yeah, I think by the up? end of the year. By the end of the year, all seven wonders should be up for all to see on, on Slate. So, Dan, I wanted to start with the, the genesis for this piece. What gave you the idea to investigate within the framework of the seven wonders? Were you reading about the ancient world and just started to scratch your head and ask yourself this question? I think part of it was a conversation about, you know, what makes things work in our world that we don't see. You know, there's a, a phrase we use called the back end, and that's like, you know, in the web world, that's sort of a back-end developer versus a front-end developer. Right. Is it invisible work or visible work? Exactly. One is sort of consumer-facing, and one is the thing that actually makes the thing function. And so the, the idea was to kind of get at what is our 21st century back-end? What, what are the things that kind of make our lives work, make our businesses and industries work, but that we never really bother to think about, that we never really look at, that often we don't even see – and I think this says something about, you know, we talk about virtual economy and everything is digital, but, you know, you still need um, physical infrastructure. Physical infrastructure. And in many ways, it's a combination of physical and digital infrastructure. But you need stuff to make all these things, these wonderful things that are part of our lives. You need stuff to make them work. Right. An example that comes to mind as you're describing that is the undersea cables, which are your, I believe, third wonder of the world. The, yes. Essentially, the would you call them fiber optic cables? The, the things underneath the sea that allow our bits of information to exactly. travel. Exactly. So we continent. focused on the Sea Me We 3, which is Southeast Asia, Middle East, Western Europe. It's a cable that starts in Australia, something like 39,000 kilometers. It touches 30 different countries. And the first undersea cables were in the 19th century. Uh, the they were telephone cables. Tele a telegraph cable telegraph. that went from New York to London. It was called a, a thread across the ocean, which is a kind of elegant phrasing of this. And this is very much a sort of 21st century version of that, except it's much longer and where the, you know, the first telegraph could carry, you know, a few dots and dashes and maybe one or two conversations across the Atlantic. This single cable can transmit hundreds of thousands and millions of email video, digital, voice conversations at once. And again, without this, this sort of network, which is spanning the globe, um, our world really wouldn't exist. One thing I love about thinking about the underwater cables, which I think to me are maybe the most wondrous of the wonders so far, I think either undersea cables or um, the dynamic map and, and GPS, I think is one of the other totally marvelous things. But we have so many international listeners, right? We're always getting email from people in China or Scandinavia or who are in remote parts of the world doing the Peace Corps who say, oh, I listen to your podcast and I get a little window onto what's happening in culture back at home. And even that, it's like, right, the actual data of our voice recordings is drib, drib, dribbing through these wires under the ocean. The other thing that struck me about it was how I sort of imagined that there were like I don't know, that the cables were much bigger and that there were like pipes that they were running through to protect them from undersea ravages. And basically it sounds like these boats are just unspooling coils of not very fat thread yeah, well, in you know, the ocean. The, How far underwater do they leave it? 
on the seabed, basically. So when you're in deep water, it just lies on the seabed. But what do they do when they get to the Marianas Trench or something? I mean, how do they lay it in the? I think they try to avoid the Marianas Trench. (laughs) Just kind of scoop around it. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, they map it in such a way that they try to get the most effective way. And when they come closer to shore, they actually bury it underneath with with a plow, because uh, you know boats and anchors and things that are closer to shore when you're in shallower water, can can cause problems. One thing that strikes me about this quest, so, you know, we, as we were thinking about this project at Slate, we were thinking about the classical seven wonders, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the pyramids, which were primarily constructed at the behest of some, you know, extravagant, self-aggrandizing person, you know, using the labor of very poor people or slaves to make themselves look glorious. And then, you know, the other ones we were thinking about was sort of the classic 19th and early 20th century wonders, the things like the Brooklyn Bridge or or the Hoover Dam, these massive but still visible feats of infrastructural engineering. And the invisibility and ephemerality and not quite palpability of these wonders, I think, is part of what makes it hard to get your head around yep. them. Do, do you think that this, these sorts of achievements speak to either the moment in history that we live in or uh, a different way in which humans frame their ambitions and achievements? What do you make of the fact that some of the, the um, most stunning innovations that we can find out there today have this slightly more invisible quality? Well, you know, these are these are our grand sort of public works projects, but they're not done by a single government agency, right? So when you think about, you know, Robert Moses and all the things he built or um, the Works Progress Administration or the Hoover Dam and all these, you know, spectacular things that the U.S. conjured into existence in the New Deal that were, you know, much needed infrastructure that were incredibly valuable, that gave us this big competitive advantage and that were government public works projects, these, in a way, are kind of 21st century public works projects, except, again, you know, it's very common for people to complain that in America, we don't build great things anymore. We don't invest in our infrastructure. You know, our railroads are kind of crappy, and we're not investing in our railroads. But in the way that we do things now, we have, in fact, invested a great deal in things like the underwater cable system or New York City's water system or GPS. And it is, you know, much as we talk about public-private partnerships to make reforms in education and all sorts of things, and we're contracting government services, uh, these tend to represent a different model. So almost all of these wonders have their origins in government research projects. You know, the, the FAA, the aviation control system, satellites, which will be coming down the pike, New York City water system. These all got started as government projects, you know, the internet um, itself. And, you know, we then did not sort of wait for the government to say, okay, here's the 20-year budget to roll this out around the world. These were much more international projects, and they were conducted by multinational corporations raising money, uh, in some cases, abetted, but you know, given sort of stimulus or tax credits, and you know, to me, this is sort of this is how we do grand public works in the 21st century. It's not um, Harold Ickes hiring 80,000 out of work farm laborers to go build uh, the civilian you know conservation corp and build the Appalachian Trail. It's some companies getting incentivized or getting contracts from national cell phone carriers to put a 
uh, an undersea cable from Australia to India, and then some other consortium in Europe laying it out from London to the U.S., uh, the net result ends up being the same, which is that you get this pervasive infrastructure that lots of people can use, um, but we just go about it in a different way. And I think that is very indicative of how we as a sort of highly indebted society with a kind of constipated government and a sort of allergy to kind of grand government gestures, you know, we're never going to have a public works agency to do these sorts of things. And yet these things do get done in a often in a somewhat haphazard and chaotic fashion. I mean, do you think this new model is a second best model that is a symptom of our sclerotic government? Or do you think this actually marks an improvement? I mean, the sheer number of telecoms who are involved in in the undersea cable that you focused on is crazy. The notion of all those companies, which I assume some were more public and some were private, working together across language barriers across the globe is an insane bureaucratic and almost diplomatic project. Should we be heartened that the forces of capitalism are getting these groups to work together or should we lament this? I mean, should we? No, I think think it's it's good. Uh, This for, you know, the when you look back to the advent of the telegraph and the telephone and the radio, every communications device, you always had these enthusiasts saying, this is going to put people in touch and it's we're not going to have wars anymore because we're going to communicate better. And the reality was that all this communications technology has just allowed people to sort of spread hatred and propaganda and manage and incite wars more efficiently. Fast forward to Twitter in 2014. Exactly. <laughs> we'll all love each other. Um, so that giant underwater uh, internet case I think has something like 60 different companies and, you know, some of them are the national telecom companies and some are private actors. But that's that's the only way you can build something that is truly global. There's a second component that we haven't discussed that I think is is both interesting and, you know, inspiring about this, which is that some of these modern wonders, it's not just what makes them wondrous is not just that somebody rolled out some cool fiber optic cable or built a cool app. It's that the the functioning of these things and what makes them very useful and great is their ability to harness uh, the contributions and data and information provided by individuals and by users. So Waze, which is this GPS app, which takes your standard kind of Google Maps, and then it has literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are official editors who will post and say, you know, this street in Italy is actually has a new name and it looks different. And so part of the system and the design of the system is to enable, allow, encourage, process, and make use of the contributions of individuals who sort of want to help their fellow man by providing a more accurate picture of what's going on with traffic or weather. And to me, that is something that is actually kind of new in in history. We didn't see that in, you know, these 19th and 20th century systems were sort of all about push. The government will gather the weather data and it will push it out to you. Uh, The radio station will give you, you know, weather on the ones and traffic on the twos and they, because they have a guy in a chopper telling you what the traffic is. Many of these wonders are sort of social in nature because they are bringing in the contributions of all these people around the world who are, you know, I'm not quite sure what the motivation is for doing it, but they seem to do it. Well, this in my mind gets gets us back to the question of unpaid labor. I don't want to overstate the comparison. Uh, you know, obviously someone 
driving around I-95 and sending in reports on traffic or, you know, helping to crowdsource the weather or do any of these things is not, you know, laying bricks on the pyramids, but they're also not getting paid. And I, I thought of that as I was reading the piece and wondered about, you know, I mean, that dampened my enthusiasm, right. I guess. So you're saying that it's possible in 3,000 years that Passover, they'll be talking about uh, <laughs> the people who are, you know, unpaid contributors to waves <laughs> rising up. And Let my revolting. people code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that aspect, and that is one of the bewildering things. And maybe this is a function of my age, that why would somebody want to spend a large amount of their time editing a map for someone else's benefit? Um, and that's a question I guess you have to ask those people. But one of the interesting things about Waze and also Weather Underground, which is a forthcoming one, which uh, it integrates, you know, people can put these weather stations at their houses. They cost like 150 bucks, and it just tells you the temperature, the wind, et cetera, because people like to know those conditions. And it basically is just passively sending that information through the internet to Weather Underground, and then they're sharing it. So it's really, it's not requiring much labor to share the weather at your house. You're not typing it in. You just buy this piece of equipment that's providing it to you and does it automatically. By the same token, with Waze, one of the features is, and you know what I say a lot about these, is that they're, they're kind of awesome, but they're also kind of Orwellian. Because when you have Waze open on your it's pinging your GPS chip. It knows where you are. And it can tell so that if you're reporting a traffic condition but you're 80 miles away, it will know to sort of disregard that. But it also knows generally the speed you're going. So it sees – you can see that – you can look and see another sort of Waze user and it'll highlight and says, oh, they're going 50 miles an hour on the highway, which tells you how traffic is flowing. That didn't require the person to – punch something in. It didn't require any labor on their part. The technology allows you to be a passive contributor. And that's part of the genius, but it's also one of the sort of items that is a little troubling about this because it is, for this to work, millions of people have to kind of give up information about where they are, how fast they're going. Um, and again, that's sort of a metaphor for our sort of Facebook, LinkedIn, Loss Twitter of world. privacy, right? Yeah. I do understand the crowdsourced impulse, I think. I mean, I, you know, we published the your Weather Underground piece this week, Dan, and I had the response of like, oh, I want to buy a weather station and contribute to Weather Underground. And then I was like, oh, wait, I live in an apartment in New York. I don't have a place to put a weather station. But, you know, and it is right. The piece of equipment costs $200 up to $1,000 or whatever, and I'm not going to actually do it. And that's troubling the idea that people would just be independently donating their money in real estate to this project, even if uh, it doesn't require them to actually punch in. It's raining now on an app 70 times a day. But, you know, typically the the emotional experience of confronting some overwhelmingly cool piece of infrastructure was, wow, I'm so glad they did that. And the feeling that you get with Waze or Weather Underground is like, hey, I can help. You know, the, the same yep. impulse that <laughs> might make you might make you want to contribute to Wikipedia, which is something that some of our readers suggested as a possible modern wonder. I sympathize with that. You know, it's like cool to look at the Brooklyn Bridge and think how amazing that anybody ever made such a useful thing and that they chose to make such a useful thing so beautiful as well. But um, I don't know. It's it. Uh, well, do you not share that impulse at all, David? No, I do. And, and the Wikipedia example that the readers have mentioned is one that, that speaks to me. I think part of it is that 
Wikipedia, as far as I know, doesn't track its users' movements to get back to something that Dan was saying. And so in that way, doesn't and, – and, and this, is a, this is a visceral reaction on my part more than an intellectual one. But, but when I think about that data and the knowledge that you know, companies are acquiring, to me that, that's an embodiment in, in our age of the sort of power that I see in the old wonders, which I find scary as much as, as awesome. I mean, I think, you know, these wonders raise the same questions that the the kind of lesser wonders of Facebook and Twitter and all the other data services we use every day raise, which is apparently we do value the conveniences of this new world more than we value, you know, our privacy or ability to be isolated from these these corporations and their knowledge of us. And I agree, David, that we don't know exactly where that will take us or will land us. But it does seem true that the vast majority of folks now do value the stuff they get to use for free more than what they have to sacrifice to use it. All right. So Daniel Gross, the modern Herodotus, is rounding up the seven wonders of the world on Slate. You've got two more to go, correct? So, yes. So I encourage listeners to go and look at the wonders that we have out there so far. And are you still taking crowdsourcing ideas for your last two wonders, or have you nailed them down? I will. You know, if people will pay me, I might do an eighth. <laughs> You're bribable, huh? Encore. Oh, we can make a, a eighth wonder of the eighth wonder and crowdsource that. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great series, and uh, we hope to have you on again soon. It was a great pleasure being here. And now a word from our second sponsor. Yeah, Danny, we have a new sponsor this week, Creative Bug. And it's kind of perfectly timed, at least in my mind. Creative Bug is a site and a set of apps that will allow you to take classes that will teach you how to do craftsy projects. And I feel like December and January are the ultimate crafty project season. I say this because basically I do my one annual knitting project in this time period. Sadly, my dream of knitting my children's own Christmas stockings um, is not going to get done for this Christmas. I'm going to have to start for next year, I think. But I love, it's like you're near a fire, maybe, if you're lucky enough to have access to a fire, or you're cozied up with some hot cider, and that's when you want to get your craft on. But if, for example, you never learned how to do these things, or like me, you know how to do one thing, knit, but you've always been interested in another embroidery and you've never actually given it a shot or bothered to learn how to do it, Creative Bug could be the solution for you. It brings top inspiring designers and crafters, some of whom have been featured in places like O Magazine, Martha Stewart Living, and Vogue into your home and provides you with step-by-step instructions and all the tools and techniques you need to infuse your own personal style into each and every project. These instructors can teach you the simplest of crafts to the most intricate at your own pace, anytime, and anywhere with the Creative Bug app for your phone or tablet. We have a special offer for our listeners to get 30 days of Creative Bug premium membership for free. Go to creativebug.com, sign up for premium, and enter promo code CULTURE to redeem your free month of access to hundreds of exclusive classes updated weekly. Again, that's promo code CULTURE, and your first month is free, thanks to Creative Bug. All right, Dana, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, so on to our third topic. So if you wander the streets of a major city in 2014, you're likely to see a certain style, a certain look on a man, right? Usually a young man, usually a straight man. Always a white man. And always a white man. Maybe not always, but most of the time. Well, maybe we'll get into that and why that's the case. But what does this guy look like? Help me describe him. He's got a long, bushy beard, much longer than Haglund's (laughs) Harry's groomed (laughs) little short one. Also uh, flannel. You know, right? uh, work boots. Right. Maybe a Carhartt jacket. Possibly. 
essentially this hypothetical man we're talking about looks like he's about to wander into a forest and start chopping down some trees, which is why he has been dubbed as a sort of a subset of, of a hipster style, the lumber sexual. So I want you guys to help me talk through this. I'm, we're mainly talking about an Atlantic article by Willa Brown, Lumber Sexuality and Its Discontents, although she did not coin the term. I guess it's been around in the air for a little while? No, it's actually pretty new as far as I can tell. There was a post on Gear Junkie, of all places, and I actually think that that's not irrelevant where it comes from. But that, that post was from just uh, a few weeks ago, I think October 30th, and it just took off and, and was shared very widely, and the term was then picked up by BuzzFeed and Gawker and Time and all sorts of places. It's, it's a little odd because it's describing a phenomenon that has been around for a while, I would say at least five years. And in fact, people may be familiar with the term urban woodsman, which just isn't as catchy, I guess, but is what people used to call this particular look. I mean, honestly, I sort of feel like this whole crop of trend pieces is just because that word is so fun to say, lover sexual. You guys are going to have to talk me down from this. We, I do sort of feel like Metcalf frog-marched us into doing this topic <laughs> and then abandoned us. And he was saying, this is so important. There's so much to say about it. And Carhartt jackets, and I'm, I'm all over it. And I look at it and I think, this sounds like a cooked-up trend to me. I mean, guys wear beards and flannel. I mean, she, she does have some interesting history of actual lumberjacks and sort of the, the idealization of the, the, the woodsman by more effete urban writers in the, the early 20th century. And that stuff is great. But the tie that she makes between that and this particular urban fashion of today just seems very weak to me. I want you guys to tell me why this is a thing. I mean, the style itself is a thing, right? We've all seen people dressed like this living in, uh, you know, coastal elite cities as we do. So certainly people dress this way. They have also been dressing this way, in my estimation, for five to seven years. And I think you're right that part of why there's been a little wave of pieces around this now has to do with this this delightful coinage of the lumber sexual, which is just too freaking fun to say, to ignore. But I did think that the Willa Brown piece in The Atlantic was interesting and worthy of discussion simply in that it in that it just pointed out that the lumberjack has essentially always been a fantasy the no, the notion of the like you know workmanlike guy who's just so connected to the trees he's cutting down and gets to take deep breaths of fresh tonic air out in the pine soaked forest uh, you know whatever whatever your fantasy is of what it's like to be a lumberjack frying an egg over his his tidily made campfire in the morning you know, the basically being a lumberjack sucked. It was horrible, poorly paid, very, very grueling, very, very physically dangerous labor, you know, for as long as it has existed. And the slightly grisly sight of people fantasizing about this mode of work, uh, it's not exactly awesome to be super romantic about this mode of being. But is everyone who's wearing a beard and work boots fantasizing about the joy of cutting down pine trees in 1900? That's the connection that I don't get at all. Right. No, I, th I thought that the piece by Willa Brown was fine as it goes. You know, she's obviously done her research. I think her bio said that she's a PhD candidate and she brought in secondary material, T.J. Jackson Lears and some primary material, you know, this old piece in The Atlantic. But as an analysis of what's happening now, it felt really simplistic because I don't think most of the people you see 
are indulging that fantasy, or if they are, there's probably a self-consciousness about it, and it, it clearly is a, a reaction in part to the metrosexual, and there's, you know, to some extent, it's a cycle. But I think that the other reason that this sort of took off, besides just the term, which is a big, big part of it... It just sounds like you want to get it on with lumber, which is just <laughs> very funny to think about. But also, <laughs> if you go back to the original post, which is on this, this site called Gear Junkie, I don't know if how many of our listeners will be familiar with it, but it's for kind of outdoorsy goods. I mean, it is actually a place one might go if you really wanted to go camping and look for the things you could buy. And it has a sense of humor, but it is essentially full of scorn. And I think that's why it's getting shared so much is because people want to express their displeasure with this sort of supposedly bogus trope, this supposedly bogus look where these guys are wearing these things that they obviously haven't earned by their manly labor. And in in many ways, I think the anxiety that's expressed by this is not, at least not entirely, with those guys. It's with the people who are responding to them, who in some ways find it um, repellent or, I don't know if threatening is probably too strong a word, but I think there's something more complicated going on than just, oh, masculinity is in crisis once again, and so we're growing lots of beards because we want to think that we're manlier than we are. Wait, sorry. So your argument is that basically this site that's a purveyor of like camping gear and probably some flannel shirts of their own is making fun of the urban woodsy aspirant. Yes. Uh, and that that's that that is the thing that has gone viral, which is scorn the people who conceive of themselves as actual outdoorsmen, scorn for the urban faux outdoorsmen. Right. In fact, if you if you look at the post, one of the images, and this just gets it the way web publishing happens these days, but one of the photos that uh, this person used to illustrate his post was from the New York Magazine piece from 2010, January 2010, about the urban woodsmen. And that piece, you know, did not go viral in this way, probably in part because it was sort of sympathetic and, and didn't, you know, drip with disdain for the men who dress this way and live this way. And also that term's not as sketchy. I mean, there's, there's a larger argument to be made that I don't see anyone making that could sort of place the phenomenon in general of the, uh, I mean, the word hipster means nothing anymore, but like the young urban um, person fascinated with crafty pursuits and sort of, you know, um, authenticity that places that in a larger context of Rousseauian romanticization of earlier times, right? I mean, I guess the connection between the uh, the, the old sort of cult of the lumberjack and, the, and this new style tries to do that, but I just, I didn't see any larger thinking going on. I mean, maybe we should do some of that thinking right here and now. I think it, it is unquestionable that 19th century farm life, you know, has become this uh, this kind of idealized goal for a lot of young urban dwellers or people that are leaving the city to go start their own farms. And so it's all part of the farm to table movement and all of that stuff. And there's, there's, it's, there's actually a, a huge amount of, um, of 19th century idealization that's that's sort of cultural capital right now. I just I don't know that making fun of this particular style, which frankly, if I were a man, I'd probably dress like this. It's easier <laughs> not to shave, and plaid shirts are comfortable. Yeah, I'm not saying, and I don't think anyone's saying that any particular person is like consciously being an appropriative asshole for dressing this way. I just think it is fascinating that this is the mode uh, that 
is in fashion at the moment. And it does say something about larger cultural yearnings. And I think, you know, part of the virality probably has to do with the term. Part of the virality has to do with the timing. I mean, I think that piece three or four years ago was describing something that felt slightly newer as opposed to something that feels a little bit like, man, people have been dressing like this forever. Like, when's the next thing about to happen? I don't know what the next, I mean, maybe the next thing is normcore and, you know, people who sort of dress like they work in a futuristic hospital. But, um, you know, the, the, the moment has maybe curdled a bit, I think, and that may explain some of the virality of the scorn. Yeah, I to- I, yeah. No, I no, I totally agree, Julia. I think that this this to me signals probably the death throes of 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 that style and and that look. I was trying to remember the the history of metrosexual and when that sort of uh, first reached kind of mass public consciousness, and then how long after that it was that it declined, because it does feel like we're in that moment. I have to say, I was reading some of the articles around this term on the subway on my phone, and I looked up, and there was a guy, you know, down the subway car wearing a flannel shirt and jeans. He had a big bushy beard, but he but he didn't look particularly fashion conscious. You know, nothing fit him all that great. Um, you was know, there an axe sticking out of his backpack? There was not, but he did have a backpack, but it was not one of these stylish leather rucksacks that that some of the pieces mentioned. It was just a backpack. But I, but to me, and I, you know, this is obviously totally anecdotal, and I didn't go up and ask him why he was dressed that way. But I think that the look has sort of spread to a point where you see it everywhere and it has become totally unremarkable and totally recognizable to almost anyone. And, and you know, it's probably on the way out. The premise that masculinity is in crisis and to try to take that into to fashion and talk about why men are dressing and grooming themselves the way they are is fascinating. It's great. I would love to, to, to dip deeper into that. I just always feel like, you know, there's such a sense often with these trend pieces that, you know, you just have to make something work. You just leave everything out of your, your argument that doesn't make that connection work, you know, between early 20th century lumberjack love and whatever is happening now. Right. Yeah, what was missing for me especially was the mid-century because, you know, think about the period that Mad Men is trying to evoke where the clean-shaven look has become dominant and then the 60s happen and then you get something actually kind of similar in terms of the return to nature, you know, this this sort of embodiment of of rustic ideals. Uh, 1969 also happens to be when Monty Python first performed I'm a Lumberjack and I'm Okay. Which Which is never mentioned tragically in the Atlantic piece. I mean, what an oversight. And the whole joke of that, right, is that this this guy wants to be a lumberjack, wants to be manly and rugged, wants to wear a, a a dress and a bra. And, then- and have butter scones for tea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this the song deconstructs, you know, lumberjack aspirations far better than anything that we read, I think. I mean, especially ending on the wonderful line, I wish I was a girly, just like my dear papa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, in, in, in essence, lumber sexuality becomes sort of a strange, you know, pansexuality at the end of that song. Right, and I think part of what happens with, I mean, there's metrosexual and now lumbersexual, they're all evoking homosexual and heterosexual, right? All of these terms are rooted in a kind of um, sexual fluidity that I, th- I think you know was different a hundred years ago was understood differently and is ac- and are actually playing with it so all these terms I think are actually evoking a, uh, a certain I don't know I don't want to say sophistication but a, a consciousness a self consciousness about sexual identity no I think I think that's right guys and I you know on the beard point I totally makes sense that that's a signifier whose meaning could change over time right at certain times, you know, getting your razor and learning to shave, that's what means you're manly, like the Gillette man and his strong jaw, you know, you that that is what separates you from boyhood is 
growing that stubble and shaving it off. On the other hand, there's the argument that maybe the beard just unfettered is your your virile sprouts across your face. And um, to try and hide that and mask that for the dictates of fine society is is squashing your manhood in some way. And I do think it is like you really can look at it either way, right? On the one hand, you know, your beard is sort of just what you look like unfettered. On the other hand, to have a beard that is socially acceptable requires an amount of grooming that is in some ways more self-conscious and thoughtful than just like scraping it all off your face every morning or however often you have to shave, right? I mean, it's like, does having a beard take you more or less time than not having a beard would? David. I think it really depends on the man in question. And this is one thing that gets uh, left out of, of this discussion, which is that part of the, one of the reasons that beards sometimes do have this cachet is because not everyone can grow a big full beard. Not everyone's facial hair does that, basically. And so I think there have been times where you know, the ability to do that signifies masculinity in a certain way. But there are men for whom growing a big full beard can look, you know, uh, can look fashionable, can look culturally acceptable. And then there are those people, if they let it go, it would just look scraggly and gross. And they just have strange patches of yeah. hair growing out of their face. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there is an element of randomness as well as an element of style in all of this. And there is also certainly male anxiety tied up in all of that, that you feel like, oh, I wish I could grow a beard, but I just physically can't grow yeah, one Yeah, I live with like one that. of those people. He <laughs> would have a beard if he could. Instead, he's just sort of permanent scruff. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I think if I were a man, I would 100% have a beard. Not because I necessarily, it would depend on my face, I guess, and my hair and how it grew, but shaving every day seems like an incredible trial. I mean, you know, women think they have it bad. Like, the thing that is on your face and you have to remove it every single morning, it just, that sounds brutal. Yeah, but Julia's right. The trimming and maintenance can be just as annoying. And honestly, I don't know which one of them is sort of easier for me personally. I like the way the beard looks. And that's why I keep it, not because it's easier. Yeah, I don't know. I can't imagine it. It does seem, just seem like an awful thing to have to do every day. <laughs> All right. Well, go and read up on Lumbersexuals and uh, let us know at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Well, we've done it, guys. We've reached the time in our show when we endorse. Let's start with you, David, our guest. All right. I'm going to do something uh, slightly risky, I think, in endorsing a movie that I haven't seen for a little while. I I have seen it two or three times, so I've you know, resting my confidence in it in that. But as some of our listeners probably heard, David Denby stepped down as a critic for The New Yorker recently. And I I can't say I'm a a huge fan of his work, even though it was a long time ago, the whole Do the Right Thing review, which if if you're not familiar with, you know, Google that. uh, He basically described the film as irresponsible. Um, That still, uh, you know, that that left a sour taste for me that, that lingers. But But I will say one movie that he recommended as far as I can remember, far more strongly than any other critic, and to you know, for which I'm grateful, is a movie called We Don't Live Here Anymore, which I, I it stars Laura Dern, Peter Krause, Mark Ruffalo, and Naomi Watts, and I think is as good as that cast would suggest. It's about these two couples living in um, actually sort of the land of lumbersexuals. I think it's the Pacific Northwest, and they're uh, academics, not big time academics. They're uh, you know, teaching at a, at a small college, or the two men are, and there's infidelity and recriminations. Uh, it's based on, I think, possibly multiple stories by Andre Dubis. And weirdly, it came out right around the same time as In the Bedroom, which is also based on stories by that author. And I think it's so much better and did not get half the praise, I don't think, as that other movie. So I hope it's as good as I recall. I, I, I do recommend you seek it out and, and let us know what you think. Julia, what have you got? 
I have an endorsement that I am more excited about than any endorsement I've done in the past while. I became completely entranced by this book, and it also has the upside, David, of meeting the criteria for your what should you do after you finish listening to Serial uh, call out on your Serial Spoiler Special podcast. So this is a book, uh, I think actually we may have spoken about it on the podcast before. I think Jody Rosen might have endorsed it. It's called People Who Eat Darkness, The True Story of a Young Woman Who Vanished from the Streets of Tokyo and the Evil That Swallowed Her Up by Richard Lloyd Perry. And it is the tale of this extraordinary disappearance and what befell of this young British woman in Tokyo. It is an incredible piece of reporting and an incredible piece of emotional analysis, basically, both of the dynamics within the family that loses this young woman and the social dynamics between Tokyo, Britain, and these two different cultures that are working together and in some cases clashing in the effort to figure out what happened to this girl. And just in the moment of the bad reporting of the UVA story uh, about the gang rape at at the University of Virginia that has come under fire recently. It's so pleasing to be in the hands of someone who is so clearly a deeply scrupulous reporter and yet can still turn facts that it is clear have been incredibly thoroughly vetted, can still turn them into an emotionally searing, fascinating, suspenseful, and insightful narrative. It's an incredible piece of reporting and writing. It's I hate to use the phrase tour de force because it just sounds like bullshit, but it really is one of those things where I, you, you feel like you're walking across an incredibly well-constructed bridge and you can't wait to turn the page and just see like what awesome thing is on the next page. So I can't recommend it more highly. People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. Wow, that was so passionate, Julia. I want to race out of the studio and go buy that book right now. I've just been like boring my husband to tears being like, this book is so good. I remember reading him one fact in the middle. There's some, you know, some detail about one character and what they were like in fourth grade or something. And it becomes clear that for this one sentence of fact in the book, there must have been about 14 interviews conducted. Like, it's just so sturdy. It's such a sturdy piece of work. It's terrific. All right. That was an excellent endorsement. Um, I am going to endorse something this week, David, that you did, but I'm not doing it to butter you up, which can be proven by the fact that this was going to be my endorsement, even when I thought Steve was joining us this week. This week on Slate, you and Rebecca Onion, who's Slate's history blogger, she runs The Vault, and she's been in a guest on our show. You and Rebecca Onion rounded up the 25 best podcast episodes, not podcasts, but single individual episodes of all time, um, which must have been an incredible amount of listening and yeah. work. And uh, and they're up on Slate now, and they're wonderful. Some of them I knew already. Um, I'm not going to give away what number one is. But, you know, I, I, some of the podcasts I had never even heard of, and it's just, it sort of opened up a whole new world to, to read about all these. And I started going through and putting a bunch of them on my feed. So that's my endorsement. You and Rebecca's roundup of the 25 best podcasts of all time. And if you do want to hear some spoilers of what's on the list and what went into compiling it and just sort of what it says about podcasts now, you did it because it's the 10th anniversary of the coinage of the word podcast. If you want to hear about some of that, then join Slate Plus, because that's going to be our Slate Plus extra this week on the show. All right. Well, thanks, David, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Julia, for phoning in from D.C. My pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. And while you're there, leave a comment if you can. It helps other people discover our show so we can make the best podcast episodes of all time. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. You can find our Twitter feed at Slate Cult Fest. 
For David Hagland and Julia Turner, I'm Dana Stevens. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. He cuts down trees, he eats his lunch, he goes to the lavatory. On Wednesday he goes shopping and has buttered scones for tea. He's a lumberjack and he's okay He sleeps all night and he works all day I cut down trees, I skip and jump I like to press wildflowers I put on women's clothing And hang around in bars He cuts down trees, he skips and jumps He likes to press wildflowers He puts on women's clothing And hangs around in bars Jack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I wear her heels, suspend and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear papa. I cut down trees, I wear her heels, suspend and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear papa. Oh, you're a